Bibles to the short little letter of Jude, please. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own authority, their position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's heir and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers, following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And, the mer and have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, and now and forever. Amen. So today we're going to look at Jude 3 and 4. Is that better? Is that okay? Much better? A little better? Okay. So on last time we looked at Jude 3. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, 
I felt the necessity to write to you, exhorting that you contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all handed down to the saints. And so last time we looked at the first half of Jude verse 3, and we saw Jude expressed his love towards his readers, who are also loved by our triune God. And then we looked at our common salvation, in which I pointed out that this is the salvation that every believer shares in Christ Jesus, in which every believer has been brought into the same family with our triune God through the salvation of Jesus Christ. And then we saw how Jude was prompted by the Holy Spirit there to make a sudden change from writing about our common salvation to writing to you, exhorting that you contend earnestly for the faith. And then we looked at the purpose of Jude's letter to the church. And here's the, po- the, the, the purpose is Jude is exhorting that you can ter- contend earnestly for the faith. And then we answered the question of who must earnestly contend for the faith. And I pointed out that every born-again believer in Christ Jesus, from the weakest to the strongest, must earnestly contend for the faith. So every one of us in here. And then we saw that every believer should earnestly contend for the faith and determine that based off Jude 4, that every believer should contend earnestly for the faith in their local church and in the broader church community. So these people have crept in. We need to contend for the, the faith in our local church and then branch out to the broader church if God calls us to do that. And we answered the question, what does the faith consist of? In which I made six statements of what the faith consists of. And I'll read those again. What does the faith consist of? One, there is only one God who consists of three persons, the Father, the Son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit, who is creator of everyone and everything, and God has revealed himself through the prophets and the apostles. Second, The Lord God is one, the only living God and true God. He is self-existent and infinite in being and perfection. His essence cannot be understood by anyone but him. He is perfectly pure spirit. He is invisible and has no body, parts, or changeable emotions. He alone has immorality, immortality, dwelling in light that no one can approach. He is unchangeable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, in every way infinite, absolutely holy, perfectly wise, wholly free, completely absolute. He works all things according to his counsel, to the counsel of his own glory for his, to his own will for his glory. He is most loving, gracious, merciful, and patient. He overflows with goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. He rewards those who seek him diligently. At the same time, he is perfectly just and terrifying in his judgments. He hates all sin and will certainly not clear the guilty. Third, God glorifies himself through his salvation in Jesus Christ. Fourth, God promises salvation to Adam and Eve, After the fall of Adam, when through Adam sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned under the federal headship of Adam as their representative. Fifth, Jesus Christ is both God and man. Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary to become the mediator, the propitiation, the representative of all who are justified, which justification is only through Christ alone. And then sixth, the gospel of the person and work of Jesus Christ, and that Christ died for our sins according, in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, that Christ is alive and sits at the right hand of God, that Christ will come again to judge the living and the dead, that God commands everyone everywhere to repent and believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And that word faith can be interchanged, intermingled with the gospel. But that is the the body, the body of truth that the whole Christian church is built upon. That faith. 
And it's been, and we saw that that faith has been once for all handed down to the saints. And Jude tells us that in verse 3 there. And what does that mean for our local church? One, we don't need any more revelation from God concerning the faith other than the Old and New Testament scriptures, although we may need up-to-date applications from these texts for our present day and time. So we don't need any more revelation. We don't need somebody to come from God and tell us more about the faith. There's no more to learn, and there's no more to be defended that is not in the scriptures. The scriptures have it all for us. Second, we must be discerning and ready to contend earnestly for the faith when someone in our body deviates from the essential doctrines of the faith. One commentator writes, no supplements or corrections will be tolerated. Don't try to add or subtract from this faith. Third, we must be ready to extend mercy, peace, and love to people who come into our church body that are in need of more understanding of these essential doctrines of the faith. And then I made five statements on how our local church can be prepared to contend earnestly for the faith. One, we can study and meditate on the scriptures concerning the person and work of Jesus Christ. If we get that right... Everything that is wrong will stand out like a sore thumb. So if that's our constant meditation, if we're not just reading the scriptures to learn about how we should spend our money or this and that, but we are truly taking the time to meditate on Jesus Christ, we'll be ready to contend for the faith. Second, we should pray that mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to every believer in our church. That should be just a daily prayer. Multiply this to me and multiply this to every member in the church. Third, we should practice contending for the faith in our local church body. And that means when somebody is practicing that towards you, you don't just run. But you stand there in humility and you go over the scriptures with that brother and sister and you listen to the Holy Spirit and you repent. And that should just be a healthy part of our church. That's a healthy part of parenting at home and your family. It should just be a healthy part of this church family that we've been adopted into. Iron sharpens iron, the proverb says. Fourth, study creeds, confessions, and catechisms. And these are just helpful tools that smarter men than us have written down for us to contend for the faith and to learn about this body of faith. Five, live by God's grace in obedience to the faith. And I just put down Romans 6, 17, and 18. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. By the way you live in front of others contends for the faith. It is the witness. It shows that this gospel can transform an evil sinner into a new creation who loves and desires Jesus Christ and his commandments. And so today as we look at at Jude, and we're going to go look at verses 3 and 4 again just a little bit, I'd like us all to think about the big picture and consider the audience as you are earnestly contending for the faith. Consider the audience that is in a local church body. Consider the audience that Jude is writing this letter to, and it's going to be read out loud in the local church or local churches or the church community in which he wrote it. So let's consider the audience. And Jude points this out. Jude points out the, the audience throughout his letter. The most important audience is seen in Jude 20 and 21. 
But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. So we must always be aware that God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ are always watching both our inner thoughts and deeds and our outer lifestyle. Who is your audience? The triune God. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. That's your main audience. Whether you're alone, in the dark, or in a building like this with some believers, that's your main audience. That's the audience that you must be obedient to. Put some scriptures down for us. Isaiah 1.16, when Isaiah is being sent, it says, Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Isaiah, you have an audience. Hebrews 4.13, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. You have an audience. Second Chronicles 16.9 For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless towards him. So he's looking at you. You have an audience and he will support you. John 1 45 through 50. I'll read this. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and, and said to him, Behold, or said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, you were under the fig tree, and I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus, even in his human flesh, could see Nathanael under that tree. You have an audience. Jesus is your audience. Think about that. John 2, 24 through 25. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. He knows your inner thoughts. You have an audience. Think about that when contending for the faith. And when I'm saying contending for the faith, I'm talking about in your inner mind, and in your inner heart, contending with the faith yourself against sin and temptations, contending with the faith against others in this local church, you have an audience. Ephesians 4.30, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. The Holy Spirit in you sees everything in your life, knows everything in your inner being. Do not grieve them. You have an audience. And then we have Acts 5, verses 1 through 11. If you want to turn there real quick. This is a... a frightening part of our audience. But we do have an audience. And we should accept that fact. Acts 5.1, But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and bought, brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And a great fear came upon all who heard of it. 
The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. You have an audience. And that is what happens when you are unwilling to contend for the faith. God does it himself. But still, we have an audience. So the second, second part of the audience, the audience which consists of all the people in the church in which Jude describes in this short letter. So I put here A, the believers who must contend earnestly for the faith. Jude, verse 1b, to those who are the called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. So while you contend for the faith, you have an audience of the rest of the church. They are your audience. It's part of discipleship. You are being trained by them. They are training you. You are to contend for the faith with mercy, peace, and love, and they're watching you. B, the unbelievers who are the imposters that are trying to destroy the faith, and it seems that they will never be converted to the faith. So this is part of your audience as well. These people that have crept in, Jude 4, for certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of a God, our God, into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. That's part of the audience. They're watching you to see how you contend for the faith. Will you deal with them? They're part of the audience in the church. C, the unbelievers who are doubters and don't know what to believe about the gospel. These people are on the edge. They could be your children. They could just be new people to the church and they haven't been converted and they are doubting. They're your audience. They, they see how you act professing Christianity. They see how these other people that have crept in the church act professing Christianity. And they're, they're doubting. They don't know, which way should I go? Which road's the narrow road? Which, what, which road is the wide road? I don't know. And they haven't come to Christ, and they're doubting. Jude talks about them. Jude 22, and on some who are doubting, have mercy. This is part of our audience. D, the unbelievers that have been influenced and are contaminated by the sins being promoted by the imposters and the influencers in Jude verse 4 and 23b. So these people, Jude 23a says, and for others save, snatching them out of the fire. These are the unbelievers in the church that have went right into the sin and said, this is great, we can do this. Because they've been influenced by the false Christians. This is your audience. And you are to contend for the faith with the certain people that crept in and with these people, but they are watching. They are your audience. And then the, the unbelievers that believe the imposters in Jude 4 and have become the influencers and contaminators, leading people headlong into sin. And that's Jude 23b. And Jude writes, And on others have mercy with fear, hating even the tunic polluted by the flesh. And when we go through these verses, we're going to expose them more. But these are the people saying, where grace abounds, where sin abounds, grace abounds more. We can just keep on sinning. Why do I know that? Because a certain person crept in and told me. 
And now I'm going to tell the whole world, you can have Jesus and you can be in your sins. And these people are telling other Christians this. And the unbelievers are hearing it and saying, great. God loves me in my sin and I love myself in my sin. And I'm going to stay in it. And we'll go over this more and we'll, we'll expose these verses. But these people are saying, go ahead. You can be a Christian. You can be in this church and you can live as you please. Now go do it. Those are the influencers. So that's our audience. As we're in this local church, as we live as Christians among a local church family and community, we have an audience. And we should be mindful of that as we go through this book of Jude. And at some point, we're going to take all the negative, some of these verses, and we're going to flip it over, turn it into positive, and say, this is how we must and should live. But for now, this, I just wanted to show you this audience that's watching us. Some people like an audience. I, I personally don't like an audience. But there is an audience. Somebody's always watching so let's look at a few examples from the scripture on how to contend for the faith. First, make sure that you are in the faith and contend with your life, showing the transformation that only comes from the gospel. So that's one way in the scriptures that we see contending for the faith. Isaiah fifty-two eleven: Depart, depart, go out from there. Touch no unclean thing. Purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. That's how you contend for the faith in the scriptures, the believer in your own life. Purify yourself. Philippians 1, 27, 30. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or, or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. This is Paul saying, this is how you contend for the faith in your local church. You let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, standing firm in the faith. And then Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. So this is how you're personally contending for the faith in your own life. You're watching yourself and the teaching this could save both yourself and your hearers. Because if you're not living according to the faith, you could lean the blind right into the pit. So second, plead with other Christians in your local church to live according to the faith. So here's how you contend with other Christians. And for this, I just put read and study the whole letter to the Galatians. And you'll see how Paul contended for the faith with that church. But for now, I'll just read just a couple verses. Galatians 2, and I'll start in 11, read to 21. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by the, their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before all of them, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus Christ 
in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness was through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. So he sees the way Peter's walking. He tells Peter face to face in front of this whole local church that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. And then he goes right back to the gospel and says, but here's what it should look like, Peter. And we know that Peter repents. But Paul shows us how to contend for the faith with other believers in the local church. And then we see Paul again in Philippians 4, 2 and 3. I urge Iodia and I urge Syntyche to think the same way in the Lord. Indeed, I ask you also... Genuine companion, help these women who have contended together alongside of me in the gospel, and also Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So Paul just, these ladies are, there's division in the church between these two ladies who have worked side by side. Their names are in the book of life. They're Christians, and Paul just urges them, get along, continue working together. He has mercy on them. And that's how he deals with them. So third, I want to point out how we contend the faith with unbelievers in the church and how their lives point out to unbelievers in the church on how their lives deny Jesus Christ and encourage them to repent and believe the gospel. And we can see a picture of this, and Greg went over it a little bit last week, but Acts chapter 8, verse 9. We'll start there. Read through 23. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them, that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. And when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver and perish, may your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that if possible the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. So Peter sees this this man that has come into the church and it says he was baptized in there. But his heart is still evil. And Peter doesn't tell him to leave. 
He simply points out the sin that's bound up in his heart that he hasn't repented of and says, ask God to forgive you. That's how they contended for the faith. And that's how we should contend for the faith according to these scriptures. So let's move on. Back to Jude 4. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Jude here in verse 4 explains why every Christian in the church must contend earnestly for the faith. So we saw the purpose. We're supposed to contend, but here's the reason. Here's the why. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed. And in the Greek, the word persons here means generically a human being, a male or a female. Some translations say men, and so we just tend to look for men. And these men are leading us astray, but Jude is using this Greek word, and it means males and females. So we see these certain persons, they could be men and women, creeping into the church. And it says, these persons have crept in unnoticed. And the verbal form used here is derogatory. And it implies that these persons are outsiders and have hidden their true character and motives when coming into the church. So these men and women have crept into the church unnoticed. So in other words, these men and women were crafty like the serpent in Genesis 3.1 and are pretending to be godly members of a Christian church. And then they come into your church and they want to be a part of it. And some other words to describe these people would be wolves in sheep's clothing, deceivers, seducers, false brothers, false teachers. And the best word that I saw in the commentators using was imposters, which means one who imposes on others, a person who assumes a character for the purpose of deception, a deceiver under false character. That's what Jude is saying these people are. They come into the church... And they came with a purpose to disguise themselves, to trick you. So let's look at a couple descriptions of these people in the scriptures. Second Corinthians eleven, fourteen through fifteen, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. And then Galatians two four. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery. These are some descriptions of these people. And it seems that these people came into the church and made themselves look like they were going to be a great addition and a great blessing to that local church. They came in. They had something to offer the church. They were going to help this church be a force of power to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. But that's not what they actually came to do. Jude doesn't mention what these people believed or may have been teaching, but his focus is on their way of living, their lifestyle that was not in step with the faith and how their lifestyle was their teaching. So they may not have been standing in front of the church teaching from the word of God, but their lives were teaching other Christians in a way that was leading them astray. And Jude was worried about this, and he wrote about it. So we must assume that these imposters, they came into the church and claimed that they were genuine believers of all the right doctrines of faith, and they agreed with the teaching in the local church. And this is one of the reasons why we contend for the faith. We're not trying to bring people to the doctrines we believe. We're not trying to win people from Arminianism to Calvinism. We're not trying to win people from 
the normative principle to the regulative principle. We're trying to win everybody to Christ. That's the goal. Win them to Christ. Let the word of God do the rest in those doctrines. Let our lifestyle work out those things. But we're trying to contend for the faith. We're trying to win people to this triumph God through the salvation that only comes through Jesus Christ. So these people, they come in and they say, we believe in the doctrines of grace. Therefore, we're part of your church. We believe in the five solas. Therefore, we're part of your church. We can help you. And then they come in. And they don't even know Christ. And if the church doesn't contend for the faith, the whole church can just go the wrong direction. So Jude, he'll tell us four things about these imposters in Jude 4. So first, in Jude 4 here, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. The meaning here is that this condemnation was written down in a book long ago, which could mean in the scriptures or in God's own book for judgment. Nobody can agree on that. But in both cases, this is encouraging to the church because this signifies that God is not surprised by these people or their actions and that these people will not prevail against the church because God will ultimately deal with these people himself on the day of judgment. So we can be encouraged by that. When they come into the church, they're not surprising God. They're not thwarting his plans. They will be judged. Second Peter 2, 3 their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Proverbs 16.4 The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. So we don't have to be surprised by this. While our hearts may be broken, while we contend for the faith and people leave because they don't want to believe it, The Lord has made everything for its purpose. So second, Jude says in verse 4 here, these people are ungodly persons. And ungodly here means without worship. So one commentator writes, ungodliness is a sin that is often spoke about, but few people know what it means. The word means without worship. Worship is the chief important activity for people to be engaged in. In worship, a created person shows his respect for God. In this sense, it stands for the whole subjection and obedience that we owe God. And when any part of that service, respect, or honor is denied or withheld, we are guilty of ungodliness. We should think about that in our daily lives. Is every part of my life, is it worship of God? Or is it a sin of ungodliness? Is it stuff that I'm doing without worship? So listen to what Jude says about the ungodly. Jude 14, 15. Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. If people continue in their ungodliness, the Lord will take care of that. We don't need to make anybody a morally better person. We just need to point them to Christ. He'll take care of the ungodly. Our prayer is that he saves them all from their ungodliness. So when Jude refers to these people as ungodly persons, he seems to be saying that these are wicked people who may acknowledge the true God but live their lives in such a way 
that it were as if they did not possess the knowledge of God. So they profess to know God, but then they live their lives in a way that they don't even acknowledge that he exists. Titus 1.16, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. And we'll move on to the three here. So the third, Jude 4, another description of these people in Jude 4, who turn the grace of our God into sensuality. Grace here describes all the undeserved love, benefits, and privileges that God has bestowed upon us in Christ Jesus. So that's grace. And I'll read Titus 2, 11 through 14 to you. Show you a picture of what God's grace does in our lives. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So that's what the grace of God does in our lives. And it says here, these people turn the grace of our God into sensuality. So the word turn means to change, which indicates that something is transferred away from its original purpose. And the word sensuality often means sexual sin or any gratification of the bodily appetites, which include carnal and sensual pleasures. So Paul tells us in Romans 13, 13, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and in drunkenness, not in sexual immorality, or sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. And he uses that same word there in that phrase. Those are all things we need to turn away from. But these people are saying, because of the grace of God, we can do this now. So these people exchange that meaning of grace of God, which leads to godliness, and use the grace of God to justify their sexual desires and their worldly pleasures. One commentator writes, You have a hint about the reason the apostle writes against these people with such zealous indignation in the word our, our God. They're saying this, they're they're living this lifestyle in the midst of us, and this is how they feel about our God. And he says, who changed the grace of our God, as if it were saying that grace, whose sweetness we have tasted, whose power we have felt, the grace of the God who has been so kind to us in Christ and the grace on which all our hopes stand be abused in such an unclean way as they exchange it. And this should make us want to strive to contend for the faith in our own lives and in the people around us. We want everybody to glorify God. And then fourth, they deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. And Master and Lord both refer to Jesus Christ here. The impostor's main sin is that they deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Most likely, these people are professing that Jesus is Lord, and at the same time, they are living in a way that shows that sin is still their master. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 6.24, No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Jesus is the only master. It can even be used as dictator. He's the only dictator, as in a good way, a good dictator, that dictates the whole earth. Everything's been subjected to him, and they deny it. And then the name Jesus himself. The angels came. Matthew one twenty one. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The purpose is in his name. These imposters live as if Jesus saves them from the penalty of their sins so they can go on living in sin. That's how they deny him. 
Paul says in Romans 6, 1, What shall we say then? Are we, t- t- are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? And then let's look at the name Christ. It means anointed, which speaks of his designation from God and is a summary of the Christian doctrine concerning the person, natures, and offices of Jesus Christ. And they're denying that by the way they live. So Jude says these persons, by their way of living, deny all of Jesus Christ. Not just parts of Jesus Christ. No, these people are professing, yeah, he's Lord, he's Messiah. But they deny all of it. So what must we do? Jude gives us the answer in verse 3. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you exhorting that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. And this wasn't meant to be a discouraging sermon. I, I hope some of you are encouraged by it that God can take our evil hearts And he can replace them with a new heart of flesh. He can take our evil thoughts and replace them with thoughts of beauty and glory and majesty in him. He can take our sins. He can nail them to the cross. He can free us from them. He can give us new desires. He can give us a new love and obedience to him. And this is what we want to contend for. This is why we want to contend for our Lord and our Master, Jesus Christ. For the sake of what Brian was saying before we started this at the beginning, he took our sins to the cross. He stepped in my place. He became the liar, accepting the wrath for the liar the adulterer, the disobedient to parents, he took your place. And now you can freely have all of the privileges that he deserves in him. Repent, believe in the gospel. Contend for this faith. 